2: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and VerisAge Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are honored. We have Tony Dolan, former President Reagan's chief speechwriter. Hey, Ed, how's it going?
3: Great, Ron. Can't wait to talk to Tony about this. It's going to be fantastic.
2: Yeah, we're making our way through Reagan speechwriters. This is wonderful. So let me... (laughs) Let I me, mean, and I'm not going to do his bio justice because it's incredible, but Anthony Dolan is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist at the age of 29 and was chief speechwriter for President Ronald Reagan from March 81 until the end of 89. Uh, for a time, he was a conservative folk singer who put out the album Cry the Beloved Country. And he wrote two of Reagan's most famous speeches, the Ash Heap of History speech and the Evil Empire speech. Tony Dolan, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Tony, how are you?
0: I'm good. I don't know what happened there, but uh, uh, I don't know possibly (laughs) the Chinese government doesn't want this conversation to be. But yes, but we'll see.
2: (laughs) Well, good. Now that my heart started beating again. So, Tony, let me ask you. How did you go from having a youthful indiscretion of supporting JFK in 1960 to being chief speechwriter in the Reagan White House?
0: Well, you know, I, I think rather than supporting, I was attracted to his candidacy and to, uh, uh, to the eloquence of his appeals. I actually, I, I will have you know that I played Richard Nixon in the seventh grade debate at Our Lady of Assumption, uh, and another kid played Kennedy. And, um, I was so persuasive that even, uh, the principal who was a a nun said she might be reconsidering her vote for the first Catholic candidate for president who had a chance of making it in any case. But, um, um, no, I, I I grew up in a household that uh, had subscribed early to William F. Buckley Jr.'s, um, magazine in 1955, the National Review. And, um, uh, uh, although, I actually had an uncle who ran against Jack Kennedy in the Democratic primary in 1946. We came from a family of Democrats, but Massachusetts Democrats, but they, um, like Reagan, they felt the Democratic Party had left them, not that they had left it. So they drifted toward conservative politics. And um, uh, in the early 60s, I was um, one of the young teenage enthusiasts for Barry Goldwater. And uh, during that time, I happened to see it one of uh, – Uh, the local anti-communist committee of speech by a guy named Ronald Reagan uh, that was put out by GE. It was his after-dinner speech. And I thought to myself, wow, uh, is this compelling? It was about the dangers of big government and the dangers of the Soviet Union. And um, uh, so uh, um, um, uh, I was drawn to him, and I, I was hopeful that one day he could be president of the United States and After that, uh, I was uh, lucky enough to go to school and become a friend of uh, William F. Buckley Jr. and worked on a whole bunch of political campaigns on the conservative side, starting with his brother's campaign in 1970. So that is how it all happened. It was really an intellectual journey because uh, it was um, uh, great fun to uh, uh, read early on uh, uh, the ideas of Buckley and National Review and, and Ronald Reagan.
2: Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, I never had the chance to meet William Buckley or Reagan for that matter. But, well, and you were a pole bearer at Buckley's funeral. What was he like, Tony? Say that again. W- what was William F. Buckley like?
0: I'm sorry. I, you're breaking up on me. I don't know why.
2: Oh, okay. Um, you were You were friends with William F. Buckley.
0: I was, yeah. I was very lucky to uh, know him, um, really, since I was uh, 19, uh, or 18, actually. Uh, he'd seen something I wrote in the, um, the old Daily News, and he wrote to me about it. He kept an eye on it. He'd been editor of that paper. And we became great friends after that, and uh, I was lucky enough, I suppose is the word, uh, but uh, he did ask that I be one of his pallbearers um, at uh, his funeral in St. Patrick's, so it was a great honor. Um, I've written something about knowing him uh, called uh, The Other Buckley. It's in National Review, so uh, if anybody wants to look it up.
2: <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. I will check that out. That's wonderful. Um, because I, I, everybody says he was just so, he had such a magnetism about him and was just such an energetic guy, but he really when you talked to him, you felt like you were the only person in the room. Let's. I want to talk to you about uh, Reagan's four speeches that kind of frame the Cold War. And of course, you're responsible for a lot of these, your fingerprints are on them. But the British Parliament speech, where he kind of announced his strategy in 1982, the Evil Empire speech, where he made the moral case for pursuing his strategy, the Berlin Wall speech, of course, where he pressed his advantage with Gorbachev. And then, of course, the Moscow State University, where he took his victory lap i guess you could say you wrote the first two of those the british parliament speech is phenomenal what's the backstory with that
0: uh well it's interesting um there's a sense of which all three of those were reagan speeches um talking about us writing them um the first one was um if you look at the archives you'll find that um uh, he goes in and rewrites the text I sent him, does the whole front section, and then strengthens the second part of the section, which was a um, essentially was the beginning of his strategy. The Westminster speech that you mentioned also, the Aship of History, uh, mentioned it too, uh, that uh, the Soviets were doomed, but that he was also going to confront them morally to make them conciliatory. This is what... Uh, foreign policy types never quite understand that being conciliatory towards criminal regimes is actually uh, a provocation. They think you're either trying to pull one over on them or uh, they find it an absolute um, irresistible temptation to take advantage of you. The only thing they really understand, because they are uh, of a criminal mindset, is what criminals always understand is that someone They're always trying to terrify you or con you, as anyone who's dealt with criminals understands that. And this goes to any sort of institutionalized evil, whether it's uh, communism, Nazism, or uh, terrorists or addicts, for that matter. Uh, You have to um, confront them and make them understand that you see them exactly as they see themselves and that you can't be conned and you won't be terrified. Once you do that by labeling them what they are, which is evil, uh, that suddenly um, uh, uh, transforms their uh, thinking and they, they experience a sort of catastrophic anxiety because the paradox of evil is that it knows how weak it is. Uh, it's an artifice, really, in the world, and it's sort of a raft on a sea of ontological good, even though it's powerful enough because it's ruthless and it's willing to do things like murder, march people off to the camps. Um, but once you pierce that, there's a sort of a catastrophic anxiety that sets in. <clears throat> and at that point, they become very vulnerable to... Um, Um, uh, A self-doubt, and and this is we've seen this over and over again in the uh, ruling elites of of great empires like the Soviets, and so the the first uh, um, speech was uh, Westminster, which I sort of snuck into Reagan because people didn't want it uh, to use it, and he it was really just Reagan's old speeches over the years that I had sort of studied and read when they were given. And the approach was uh, what he wanted, and he had gotten a whole lot of drafts, and one morning he said, well, yes, but I think I'm going to use Tony Dolan's draft. And the the reason he (laughs) wanted to use my draft is because, in a sense, it was his draft. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it was his thinking and in many ways and we we get into that if you want to, but the point was, and Margaret Thatcher called it a triumph because he said for the first time there was, remember the Soviet union was on the move everywhere in the world. Uh, they'd just taken Afghanistan. The red army was a two day march from the oil fields of the mid East, which would have frozen the entire Western, uh, economic, uh, 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 structure and, um, uh, in addition, it had, it had insurrections, uh, in about eight countries on, in Africa, Central America, that it was funding and financing, and it had had a lot of countries to its, um to its orbit, so its gravitational pull. So this, and okay, the West was in sharp economic decline and military decline. So here was Reagan saying they're the ones who are on the asheep of history, and it reversed the psychology. Uh, again, this had quite an impact. And then finally, there was a speech that was coming up Um, for Berlin and uh, I assigned a very talented guy named uh, Peter Robinson to do the first draft but before the draft was done uh, we went over to see Reagan and I said to him, Mr. President it's really early, I think it was five or six weeks out, but do you have any thoughts at all about Berlin? And he sort of um, um, did his Ronald Reagan imitating, Rich Little doing Ronald Reagan and he went well, yes, tear down the wall. And so that fabulous line, uh, his signature line, uh, uh, came out of uh, his own mouth at that moment in the Oval Office. And then uh, there were Norris attempts, and this is a matter of history now, to take the line out, of course, but Reagan insisted on it uh, um, uh, right up until the end. Again, if anybody's interested, I did a piece in the Wall Street Journal telling this whole story called Poor Little Words. And you just put in my name and it's there. It, it tells the story of how even up to the morning of the speech, people were trying to take the line out. So uh, people who listen to your show should know, um, it, particularly if they're young, when somebody wants to take somewhere over the rainbow out of the Wizard of Oz, um, there's nothing new to that. Bureaucracy is excellence. Uh, they uh they try to smooth everything over and that's their job. I mean there's a point to having bureaucracies, but they want to make everything look the same. So excellence is always triggers an autoimmune system reaction in any bureaucracy. So uh, all the great lines, uh not only the Reagan presidency but most presidencies, uh will cause disruption. And those three speeches you mentioned we're a point of the spear in terms of the great philosophical war. And they, in my view, they did collapse the Soviet psyche. And in the end, any great struggle is about making the other side lose its will to resist.
2: <sighs> Tony, that's fantastic. And unfortunately, we're up against our first break. Folks, we'd like to if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors.
3: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at Keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
4: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too.
1: We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And
3: we're back with presidential speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, Tony Dolan. Tony, on the, the, the speech at the House of Commons that you were just talking to Ron about, you know, Ronald Reagan has a reputation for being a warmonger, but at least twice, if not three times in this speech, he clearly says, I'm willing to negotiate. I want to negotiate. Talk a little bit about why you think the reputation has been so tarnished. It's a It's a bizarre thing to me when he was clearly willing to negotiate.
0: Well, it's because the... Media uh, wanted to believe, and so did the foreign estab- policy establishment, um, that he was that way, even though there were plenty of uh, evidence to the contrary. Uh, the best example of this is his first press conference. They asked uh, him, Mr. President, what do you think of the Soviets and how are you going to handle them in view of your past views stated about them? And he said, well, I know of no Soviet leader who has uh, not uh, reasserted Soviet revolutionary morality, which is they have the right to buy, steal, cheat, and do anything that furthers their revolution. Um, this is simply a matter of Marxist-Leninist doctrine. I'm not putting those words in his mouth. Uh, their mouths, he was essentially saying. And um, um, this caused an uproar in Washington. Um, the Washington Post, the New York Times, said it wasn't true, of course it was, and they both disagreed about which experts were right about when it was true or when it wasn't. And um, uh, the, the Washington Post wrote an editorial that was hysterical. Now, right in the middle of the press conference, Reagan had said, of course you just keep this in mind when you negotiate with them. He had affirmed his desire to negotiate with the Soviets, and he constantly uh, said that it's in the evil empire speech, it's in the uh, Westminster speech. It's in the famous Dublin speech in '84, when he, the Soviets had cut off all negotiations and tried to portray him as a warmonger in order to frighten the American people. And he had made this huge initiative uh, towards them, uh, offering all sorts of new negotiations. And everyone said at the time, oh, Reagan has changed his view of the Soviets just as uh, whenever he decided to negotiate with the Soviets, they were always saying, oh, he's finally come over and adopted our viewpoint. But he never did. He always had a dual strategy, diplomacy that was very active, but candor about how evil the criminal regime of the Soviets was. The intellectuals couldn't understand this. They couldn't handle that kind of ambiguity. They only saw things in black and white. You couldn't negotiate... um, with someone unless you wanted to treat them as co-equals. And we see this problem today. The uh, foreign policy community, a great deal of it, and certainly intelligentsia, will always identify with America's uh, enemies because, and and ultimately end up empowering them because uh, they think the real problem in the world is bourgeois, uh, uh, well, for example... Anti-communism. They thought Reagan was a representative of this. Uh, uh, Jimmy Carter referred in one of his first speeches to, um, the, uh, uh, the irrational fear of communism that, that the American people had. Four years later, he was threatening war with the Soviet Union because his approach to the Soviets uh, had caused the most dangerous, by his own admission, a set of circumstances since, uh, uh, the 1962 missile crisis. So the point being what? Uh, Ronald Reagan had always had a carefully stated strategy, one that worked. He ended up uh, signing treaties with the Soviets on arms control, that Henry Kissinger, that actually reduced um, arms and did not uh, just control them, that Henry Kissinger could only have hoped to have done during the Detente years. But the, the reason that succeeded was because he made the Soviets aware and caused internal tensions in their own uh, society that led them to uh, take a chance on Gorbachev because they knew, as Viktor Bukovsky and any number of Soviet dissidents said at the time, if Reagan kept talking like that, he was giving hope to the people the Soviet rulers feared the most, and that's their own people. And that was why his rhetoric was the most powerful thing. It was a moral force in the world uh, that the West had going for it. Now. This amazed the, uh, uh, the intelligentsia and they couldn't understand how Reagan had been successful. So even at the end, you will find, uh, when Reagan is signing all these treaties and forcing the Soviets into these, uh, tremendous concessions, you will find people like George Ball giving speeches about why Ronald Reagan never gave up his anti-communism and failed to negotiate with the Soviets. There was simply an inability to process reality. So they always, they never understood that Ronald Reagan, uh, willing to talk candidly about the Soviets, is what prevented war, whereas Jimmy Carter, who wanted to have illusions, along with Walter Mondale and a group of foreign policy experts called the New Boy Network, uh, that group wanting to have their illusions about the Soviets brought us to the brink of war with them.
3: Now, wait, there's a there's a big, great moment in the speech, and it comes just before the ash heap of history line that uh, w- that really I I. I've, Sort of remember from the time, but but we really came into full view when re-listening to it. When he invites Brezhnev to speak on American TV, and uh, if, in exchange for allowing him to speak on Soviet TV, was that Reagan? Was that something that a that you came up with? What, what's the origin of that? Do you recall?
0: Um, at the uh, by a fellow named Par- Mark Palmer who deserves credit for this. Um, he later became, uh, but it was a. It was a democracy. It was a democracy um, uh, initiative, and there were any number of these any number of these proposals made to um, to the um, to the Soviets. And what had happened was this draft had come over from the State Department, and um, it did not really have a anti-communist framework or a Reaganes framework, which is what I put around it. it the idea was to uh, promote democracy through the world, which was uh, a good idea through democratic institutions around the world. And, uh, by, by, uh, changing directly into, um, an ask of Brezhnev and an ask of, uh, the Soviets on any number of initiatives, it was meant to disarm, uh, not only them, but criticisms of the, um, uh, of Reagan's approach. But, you know, I stress and I underline uh, that uh, uh, despite uh, all those conciliatory gestures in both the evil empire speech and in uh, the Westminster speech, uh, despite all of that, um, uh, the uh, the left uh, uh, furiously criticized speech, uh, Reagan's address, particularly in 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 England. Uh, the Labour Party put out a searing condemnation of Reagan for daring to talk about the Soviets in those terms.
3: But yet it was one of the few lines that provoked a response from that audience. There was almost absolutely no response, positive or negative, for the entire speech with the exception of that invitation for Tebrezhnev. I thought that was quite interesting.
0: Yes, it was. Um, it was just – it was a very formal setting. And that in the – you'll remember the line about the Falkland Islands – Um, both uh, uh, provoked a response from the audience. It was not an address, you know, it's interesting speeches in some settings are not meant to uh, bring an audience response, particularly these days when we live in the age of the Trump rally, when um, uh, you know, we're expected there's expected to be a lot of applause lines. That's not always the case in presidential speeches. Indeed, Trump himself has shown that in certain settings like Bellows.
3: Yeah, no. It was just just, just an interesting thing. R- wraps up by say by say, saying in the most optimistic Reagan voice, uh, a new age is not just possible but probable. And he, he, uh, every speech I think I've ever heard ends on an optimistic note. That's just his personality, wasn't it?
0: Well, it's the nature of reality. Um, you either believe or you do not that there are beneficent forces at work in the world that ultimately mean that the um, there is logos in a calamitous world, um, you, you ultimately believe or you don't. And it's not a matter of belief. I think you can detect reality um, it, uh, that there is indeed a, uh, th- there may be random, as I said, there may be calamity, but ultimately we perceive order. And one of the orders we perceive, whether it's, you know, I <laughs> I point here to the market forces or the idea that democracy, those are better ways to organize human activity, and, and those are facts of reality, the notion that rather than having a bunch of philosopher kings running things with the state, which always leads to uh, usually the camps or pu- punitive measures or coercive measures, you let market forces operate in what Frederick Hayek called spontaneous order, and the same thing with democracy, that the people making decisions on their own ultimately are smarter than any group of philosopher kings that we appoint to do it, who think they're going to re-engineer society. So, the, and what is the basis of all of that? It's the basis of the Western Judaic christian uh, paradigm, the notion that there are ultimately, uh, for all the uh, wrongdoing and evil in the world, uh, ultimately in the struggle of good against evil uh, and right against wrong, uh, right and good does have the ultimate advantage. And I think the evidence of our existences <laughs> is overwhelming to that effect. So that's w- what optimism is, because it's Reagan's... Take on reality, but the second thing—it's the nature of leadership. You do not. Facts are not the truth; uh, they are part of the truth, but they are not the truth. And it's easy to recite the facts that are negative, but ultimately, uh, um, that, that's that's not why we remember the Churchills or the Reagans. They—you uh, can point to all—and Reagan addressed this once in a UN speech. He said, "You can point to all the bad things that happen in human history, but it's not what we remember about human history." It's about the heroism and the dreamers and the doers who get great things done.
3: Outstanding. Well, we're up against our next break. want to remind those of you listening that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, our Patreon site, where we have our bonus episodes as well as the, our, the commercial-free version of the show, is available at patreon.com slash tsoe. That show is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind, hire one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors.
1: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey,
4: Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn.
3: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
1: Be inspired. You are tuned into the Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag #AskTSOE. Now back to the Soul of Enterprise
2: welcome back everybody we're here with tony dolan who was the chief speechwriter for both terms of ronald reagan's presidency and tony amongst the reagan administration there were people who were labeled true believers and then the pragmatists and of course one of the pragmatists was david gergen and this guy's a textbook prag anytime i want to know what the conventional wisdom is in washington i listen to david gergen because that's about all you're going to get but he said in a 2000 interview. And I'm sure you're aware of this. I just wanted to get your reaction. He said, I hate to admit it. Tony Dolan was right. And I was wrong. That phrase, the evil empire allowed Reagan to speak truth to totalitarianism. How's that make you feel?
0: Well, um, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, it was a little late. Uh, look, people, um, uh, made the most serious efforts to stop uh, Reagan from receiving texts that he had asked for. Uh, one of the curious things, you know, you find this in history. Um, Lincoln faced the problem. Adams, uh, first Adams, had a cabinet that was one of, uh, that was opposed to his agenda. Um, Reagan had in a the so-called pragmatists in those early years, who were my bosses at know, and uh, people who felt that he was wrong about... They wanted to raise taxes, they wanted to cut military spending, they wanted to stifle his anti-communist and anti-Soviet candor, uh, and um, even even or the Organized Crime Initiative he launched, at almost every turn they were representatives of the conventional Washington wisdom. And it was one thing to make their argument to Reagan why this was wrong. It was one reason he had brought them in, because they knew the Washington. But it's another thing entirely to work with the media and the Democrats once Reagan had made his decision to move forward uh, to uh, undermine those policies. And a great deal of that was done. And um, um, uh, the, um, it wasn't Tony Dolan or the speechwriters that were right. It was Ronald Reagan who was right. And and I mean, I think mean, that's the point. And he was right on everything that the pragmatists and uh, the conventional people in Washington uh, opposed him on. As I say, whether it was reducing government, uh, getting the economy going, which was in disaster shape through deregulation and tax cuts, uh, whether it was uh, moving uh, strongly forward with... Um, uh, always offering di- diplomacy to the Soviets, but at the same time uh, refusing to uh, go along with their aggression against um, uh, uh, the truth, which is, in, in the end, the, most, the greatest aggression of all. If you stop telling the truth, as Reagan says this in a speech that he gives on the way back from uh, Moscow at Guildhall, uh, in, in Britain, which is a famous place. And it's worth looking at. It's June in 1988 because he said in it, the reason I told the truth is because if you stop telling the truth to your adversaries, you stop telling the truth to yourself. And that's the ultimate sort of, um, collapse that uh, any evil uh, institution or for that matter person will attempt to achieve in uh, those who, uh, oppose them. And, uh, uh Reagan, uh, uh, always had that belief in what he called the good things. And, um, he believed they had the ultimate power in the world, as I've mentioned. And, um, and it was his duty to speak to them.
2: You know, the way he framed the cold war, Tony just has always fascinated me. He said, basically we win and they lose. And that kind of, it's simple, but it's, I mean, not easy, but it's, it is simple which is a sign of remarkable ingenuity and creativity. But you you explain that by saying he's, he was an actor. He's used to alternative endings. And I think that's a profound insight. Well,
0: well, it's, it's very important to understand. Reagan was a man of ideas, a cerebral president. Um, he was, Every one of his CEA chairmen, the Council of Economic Advisors, told me um, how well uh, Reagan understood economics, and I can give you anecdotes about each one of them. Um, Reagan had been studying um, economics and uh, uh, the great ideas of the West <laughs> really since the late 40s. He'd been a Democrat and active in civil rights and he backed Terry Truman, but He'd had this encounter with the Stalinists in Hollywood who were trying to blacklist actors who didn't want to be sympathetic to Stalin, uh, one of the great mass murderers. And um, this was an awakening for him. He then started reading a man named Whitaker Chambers who had exposed Alger Hiss, and this was a a legal case that convulsed America. It was about uh, espionage inside the American government and identified with, uh, as I mentioned before, National Review and began reading that. So Reagan was uh, a man of very consistent ideas. I guess the best story to tell about this is when he first ran for governor, uh, his '64 speech, the famous one he gave on behalf of Goldwater, uh, people sort of forgot how much uh, the power of the ideas in there and how th- much this actor had put together, someone a lot of people dismissed as an actor. And uh, they sent him away, some of his backers, with this very high carriage trade uh, uh, research group. And um, and they came back and they said, well, look, we can't improve his thinking. You can disagree with him or you can uh, agree with him. But he has a highly developed philosophical structure. He knows what his ideas are. They're all logical and they all um, uh, fit with each other. And there's a sense in which, those ideas never really changed. So there was a sense in which the job of a radiant speechwriter was kind of easy because he'd been saying his idiom was distinct. I think you had to work on that. But, um, uh, once again, uh, he was, uh, uh he, was, he was the same person who consistently argued for, for the same ideas. And, um, those ideas, uh, came out of small town America. And, you know, there's a, Political scientist named uh, Samuel Huntington, who refers to moments of creedal passion in American politics. By that he means a creed uh, begins to be adopted by a populist movement and uh, and they strongly advocate for it. Well, that creed, those ideas, uh, it wasn't just a series of beliefs, but with Reagan, it was a series of ideas. and he he um, he literally was meeting with Gorbachev and arguing for God's existence. Um, he would, um, and there's a famous story about this, and I can remember coming around the corner in the Moscow Embassy and Colin Powell, uh, who was the National Security Advisor at the time, telling me to go into the tank, the secure area, and read the exchange between Gorbachev and Reagan. Well, it wasn't on that, it was how Reagan had led Gorbachev, Reagan, uh, Gorbachev wanted some concessions, and Reagan had uh, led him on a merry chase, and, and Powell had found that amusing, and so did I when I read it, but uh, in that same series of talks, he, had, he had tried to convert, um, um, Gorbachev to the notion that there had to be a, a higher existence in the world. And, um, he used the classic, if you will, cosmological argument for it. Um, and, uh, uh the point I'm trying to make is Reagan understood where ultimately, uh, things stood in the modern world, uh, Whitaker Chambers had put it that way himself in his famous book, "The Witness, that had so much impact on him and the conservative movement, which is that uh, you either think there's a spiritual dimension to reality, or you do not. And if you do not, you 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 can't even do science because if you just think everything's quantitative and materialistic, you can't even, you can't do any kind of second level or metaphorical thinking. Nobody's ever seen a gravity field. Nobody's ever seen an electron cloud. Science needs all of that kind of thinking, that second-level thinking, to do its work. And similarly, uh, the materialist um, uh, belief, whether it's a Marcus or Stephen Dawkins, is, is impoverished in terms of getting anything done. Anyway, to get this back to Ronald Reagan, I'm just trying to point out the depth of his mind uh, was considerable, and people understood this after a while who, uh, who had, if you will, some sort of openness about uh, trying to figure out who he was
2: right you know tony uh, claire booth loose said a great man is one sentence what do you think reagan's one sentence is
0: uh, what do i think reagan's what
2: one sentence would be
0: well H- i how... think she said he won the cold war didn't she
2: uh thatcher i think said he won the cold war without firing a shot yeah
0: yeah he, she did i thought that was Clare Boothe line too about, about uh, Ronald Reagan that he that indeed that might be the, the line that he's remembered by. Um, I don't know. That's I mean certainly that's a good thing to be remembered by, but um, because it was one of the great conflicts of human history, but and one of the great struggles for freedom. And by the way, the, the, as, as important as, for example, the civil rights struggle in the United States and everything else uh, was uh, the struggle against organized crime. This was the premier moral challenge of the age. Uh, uh, The Soviet Union had killed, what, 40 million people, and the Red Chinese had killed, I don't know, one can't even keep track, 50, 60 million. There's all sorts of speculation. The the total number is considered 100 million. Anyway, um, something by the way, Trump mentioned in his UN speech. Um, But uh, one way or the other, uh, the killing fields created by totalitarianism in the 20th century were extraordinary, and Reagan ended it, uh, but um, and and he incapacitated its greatest enablers, which were of course the left, uh, uh, the uh, the the establishment in the West, which constantly sought to accommodate um, the Soviets and and give in and back up and retreat, and um, so it's it's a worthwhile um, it's a worthwhile. (laughs) Uh, legacy or line, dear legacy. I suspect, though, that the um, uh, I think it might be remembered as a great president and a great person, but an inspiration for um, for how to uh, for how to hold your views and uh, um, even when uh, it seems impossible that any of it could possibly be successful and all the truly bright people are urging you to change um, uh, how holding that commitment can uh, change the world and lift an inspiring standard not just for generations but I mean for centuries I think people will look back on Reagan and see uh, a remarkable intellect and a, uh, a remarkable
2: person. Excellent well Tony thank you so much Ed's going to take you all the way home but I just wanted to say thank you this has been an absolute honor to be able to talk to you And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to TsoE at verisage.com. Check us out at enterprise.com. We will post full show notes with our conversation with Tony Dolan today. And now we want to hear from Sage and our sponsors.
1: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Sage
3: provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create Package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have
4: you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now you know that for $5 you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash tsoe and subscribe to today please for the love of god make it stop
1: you are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise
3: and we're finishing up here with our guest Tony Dolan, Reagan's chief speechwriter for all eight years in the White House. Uh, Tony, I'm going to go back to the the Evil Empire speech, and I I have to ask this question: the joke early on that he tells about the politician and the and the and the, uh, the clergyman going to heaven was that his joke? With did he was that oh, something yeah, one sure. of the ones I that he had collected? Yes.
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, no. I I gave him a few lines, and I was always happy about that, but, you know, he just, he had a trove of stories, and it was part of his persona. I mean, people forget, they think of him as the politician and or the governor, and they forget that, you know, yeah, people sort of know, remember, he's an actor, but they forget he had an all-other career. And one of the things he loved about Hollywood and the entertainment industry was the showbiz pitter-patter, you know, every day on the set he was a garrulous Irish guy with a great sense of humor. And every day on the set, you could have fun, uh, with the, you know, one liners or the stories. A lot of the show business people of that time had come out of vaudeville and Reagan got quite good at it. And he missed it terribly when he, you know, started hanging out with coffee nosed Republicans and gave up and, and earnest little true believers like myself. He wanted, he wanted to have fun. One of the ways he had fun was to tell these stories. He used to tell them the Gorbachev and, um, um, frequently we would write the stories in about the Soviets and uh, the uh, powers that be in the West Wing we would tra- take them out. And then Reagan, when he gave the speech, would just give them on his own. And they thought we had some sort of secret channel. And the truth was to Reagan, <laughs> the truth was he had, we were of the same mind as he was. And that's what speech writing is about, after all, uh, mind reading the principle. But yes, they, Reagan had a great, great trove of stories. Uh, one of his favorite, one that I always twisted around for use uh, in any number of speeches was a cowboy's out uh, on his horse one day and he comes around a, a bluff and there before him is the Grand Canyon. And he had not even heard the Grand Canyon before, let alone seen it. And so he just sat there atop his horse for a while and there was a great silence. And then he said, boy, something sure happened here. And um, I was... That was very useful in terms of, uh, as the Reagan years went on and the economy boomed and it soon became not only uh something that caused enormous growth, but a move towards balanced budgets and reducing the debt, and in the early 90s made all of that possible, but also brought a billion people out of poverty and ended the Cold War and destroyed the Soviet Empire. Uh, when all of that happened... It was a kind of like Grand Canyon change. People didn't quite know how to absorb it. And uh, there's a sense in which uh, uh, people still are uh, struggling with with the dimension of it and will be 100 years from now when historians write about it.
3: He, in the speech, I think quote from de Tocqueville about America ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. And then he, and then Reagan mentions that uh, the turn to secularism is beginning to happen in the in the United States, but they're not a majority yet. He says, "Do you think the secularists are a majority now, and are we ceasing to be good?"
0: No, no, I think I think they're noisier now and um, and and less inhibited. Um, but you know, there's an advantage to that. Um, one of the things democracy does is it empowers its foolish people. Um, it, it lets people see the extremists and through sometimes accident or sometimes through uh, contrivance or uh, happenstance uh, extremists end up in, in government, but then they can be clearly seen by the people. And uh, uh, I, a, I think that's what's happening now. And you know, what's, going on in Washington now is the greatest attack ad that, for example, the Republican party could ever make, even though it's the media and <laughs> the other party doing it. But the second part of this is that, uh, um, if you, if you look at, um, uh, the, um, the, 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 the fundamental, uh, beliefs of the American public, they haven't changed. I mean, it's 90% or something like that. Pray and believe in God. And, um, sometimes one goes through a period of time when the conventions that's or protocols that speak to that belief change or weaken or disappear. But, uh, um, uh, my great sense is that, that that's, that's just, uh, the change that comes before the continuity, which is that, um, I suspect there is, it's wrong to call it a reawakening, but uh, I would say a reaffirmation of, the. uh, uh, of 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 the non secularist uh, perspective on life, which is after all in the end uh, uh, as i say a pretty impoverished one you can't really deal in reality if if you don't think there's something beyond um, uh, beyond the quantitative
3: I have a question for you about speech delivery. As you saw with Reagan, he, uh, he clearly was the master of the teleprompter and did it really well. But I did notice in per- preparing for this interview that when he would quote from someone, he would look back down at his notes rather than read it off of the teleprompter. Was, was, was that something that he just uh, that he just did naturally? That or or was it he was really searching to yes, get the I quote so. right? I, mean, I think it was part of
0: his um, training. I think. Um when you're speaking to people and you want to quote someone, if you look down and um, to the card and quote them, it, it emphasizes the fact that um, uh, you're not uh, using your own words; you're uh, uh, using someone else's, who's a leader or uh, 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 um, a presence of his own or her own. So, so I, I think that was it. Was a bit of theatricality. There wasn't much, by the way, in Reagan's speeches. Uh, he uh, let the words and the sentences and the ideas and the content do the work. That's why he would write, rewrite speeches if they weren't what he wanted. And um, uh, so, and, you know, it's sort of, I always compare it to Bennett or Sinatra. They, they always let the music and the lyrics do the work. And uh, uh, that's why they were great artists. And uh, uh, they knew it was there in the music and the and, and Reagan was like that. He made sure that the speech was right before he gave it.
3: Well, we've got only about one minute left. And the one last thing I want to ask you about is I heard a quote that you said to Reagan that he or that he did not mind people calling it Star Wars. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about that, if you recall.
0: Yeah, well, I, you know, I I don't think. Yeah, you know, these are the sorts of things that happen in in the in the public idiom. Uh, you never—I mean, Einstein. Einstein wanted uh, the theory of nonvariance. He he wanted there was no relativity in the speed of light, and it came out just the opposite. So, I mean, if, if people are going to call it Star Wars, well, then let it be called Star Wars. I mean, he go along <laughs> with it. I don't think it ever uh, upset him terribly. Um, but uh, uh, and some they were calling him the great communicator. Well. It was more than that. He was he was a great idea
3: person. But, you know, he went along with that. So true. Well, the, the last quote I have is, is some from speechwriters. I think Peter Robinson said we we stole from him. And another speechwriter said that he was our he was the best editor I ever had. Um, Tony Dolan, thank you so much for appearing today on the Soul of Enterprise. We really enjoy this conversation. Hope maybe you'll come back and maybe we can get a, a better connection next time. Thanks again, Tony.
0: Yeah, My nice, pleasure. Tony. Good to be with you.
2: All right. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, we have Corey McCombs. He's the author of Productivity is for Robots, a book I thoroughly enjoyed.
3: All right. Outstanding. I'll see you in 167 hours.
2: This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 12 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com for our full show notes. Also, you can contact Ed or me. Send us an email to tsoe at ferrisage.com Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.